Our text this morning is Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Follow along as I read it aloud, 52 verses. Then Jesus arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about this same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. When Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. He took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before Jesus, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left uh, house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him, spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, 
We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, we are able. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he called out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man and said to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. If we look at this chapter thematically as a whole, like we've been doing throughout these studies, what we find is that this is a collection of people coming to Jesus and then presenting themselves to him with certain conditions attached to their discipleship. In each scenario, other than the final one that we read, the final story of blind Bartimaeus being healed, the people demonstrate a conditional faith or a conditional discipleship, and then they expect the Lord to be happy about it. They expect him to pat them on the backs about it. But each time, Jesus has some like gut-busting and very candid teaching for them and therefore for us as well. Because what we are called to as Christians and what we're called to as disciples is a complete, total surrender of the whole of our lives to Jesus Christ. That's the deal. That, that's, that's the program. That's the plan that God has called us to. But it is in our nature as fallen individuals to seek to withhold things from the Lord and from his command over our lives. Now, God, in his grace and in his mercy, he allows us to hold things back from him. Uh, he gives us a free will to choose to do that. But the consequences of a conditional faith are really quite severe. In fact, we just read in this chapter how Jesus described conditional discipleship and conditional faith. And it wasn't pretty. It wasn't admirable at all. In fact, it was very scary if you start looking at how Jesus described some of these people and uh, what that could mean for, for us if we were categorized that way. So much so that at one point, the disciples stop, they throw up their hands and they say, okay, well then who can be saved? If that's really what you want me to do, Jesus, then who can be saved? Because in our nature, we hold things back from the Lord. Now, to that statement, Jesus explained that God has this life figured out for us. I mean, he has his plan figured out. The Lord's not like, you know, uh, you know, figuring out what he's doing as he's going. The Lord knows what he's doing. He has this life figured out. And if we are willing to so surrender our lives and lay ourselves on his altar, then he will accomplish what may seem impossible to us. 
Uh, that's what this whole chapter is about. It's about assessing our obedience to the calling of Christ. Because if we're not willing to truly crucify self, uh, if we're not willing to do, do that, then we are not taking on the call of discipleship that Jesus has given a number of times now, even in this book, to take up your cross and to follow him. And so if we're not willing to crucify self, then we're not going to be able to be an active part of God's kingdom. Jesus said in verse 15 that the route into the kingdom of God is childlike faith, and in our context here, childlike obedience. Uh, obviously, kids don't always obey. If you have kids, you know that. But as I was thinking about this, uh, I think I started to get a little bit of what the Lord was talking about, maybe. I think of my own son at home, or my little 15-month-old at home. This is a tiny little guy. He walks around great now, and he, he loves to cruise around the house. Uh, he chases the cat for like 15 minutes at a time, and she just runs all around. He climbs up on the couches. He does all the stuff that toddlers do. I mean, he just cruises all around the house. And what's fun, though, is that we can say to him, hey, buddy, let's go into your room. I'll stand at his room, and he'll be you know, there in the living room. Hey, buddy, let's go into your room. And he looks at me for a minute, and then he just starts tumbling over towards me, just kind of toddling over towards me. Or when we have our back kitchen door open, it's the kind of the threshold of the house, and there's some stairs there. And he goes up to the threshold of the door, and we say, hey, buddy, don't go outside. And so he stands there just looking out, just planted there on the edge of uh, of the door there. Now, he doesn't have a discussion with me about what, what the benefits are of him going into his room or the benefits are of him staying there. You know, he doesn't have a discussion with me about obedience. And, 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 he, and at this point, as he can't communicate real well, he doesn't have a discussion with me about how can we compromise. Well, how about I take one step outside of the door and things like that. Um, he, he just does it. You know, he either chooses to obey or he chooses to disobey. And, um, you know, when he chooses to disobey, it leads to unfortunate consequences for him. But he just makes the choice. You know, there is no discussion because he's unable to communicate with us right now. Now, again, my little Gino doesn't always obey. But that's the example that Jesus gave to us for the kind of obedience God is looking for. That kind of childlike obedience where, where we listen and move toward God without question. It's like, okay, well, you want me to go in the room? Okay, I'll, I guess I'll go in the room. Oh, you want me to come out to the living room? Okay, I guess I'll t tumble out there and, and go into the living room. It's kind of fun to, to, you know, have him tour around the house with you. But then we come along here, uh, you know, us guys here, we come along all grown up, and the Lord calls us to do certain things, and we say, you know, Lord, I know you're God. You know, that's what essentially Jesus said to the rich young ruler. He said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And so he's saying, yeah, so you're, you're saying that I'm God, right? So are you going to listen to what I tell you? So we come along to the Lord. We say, well, Lord, I know you're God. You know, I'm totally locked into following you. I'm your disciple, but I'm not really in love with my wife right now. So I'm going to go ahead and get out of that relationship, and it's really not a big deal. You don't need to worry about it. Uh, I know what you've called me to in marriage and your word. I know the vows that I made to my wife and to you and to people in front of me. I, I, but I'm not really willing to lay that part of my life down on the cross right now. I'm pulling the ripcord on this thing. That's the first section of verses. You know, that first condition of, hey, Lord, I'm happy to, to follow you in this calling as long as I feel good about my marriage and feel good about this relationship. Or we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm totally committed to following you. I know you're God, uh, but I'm not going to follow your plain command in Scripture to give to your kingdom of my finances regularly and joyfully and sacrificially. I'm not going to do it, and you don't need to worry about it. We say that to the Lord sometimes. That's what the rich young ruler did. And believe me, just as an aside here, we are wealthy people, and so 
That should scare us. When we read this passage about what the Lord says about people who have wealth, it should frighten us because we are very, very wealthy compared to uh, the uh, incredible majority of all people who have ever lived in history. So we, we need to chew on that a little bit. Or we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm happy to have faith in you as long as I have my safety and my comfort and my security. I'll have all the faith you want me to have as long as I'm comfortable, as long as I'm safe, as long as, you know, nothing, you know, discomforting happens to me. Our text there says that the disciples were afraid and, and they, they were like freaked out as they walked toward Jerusalem. And as Jesus was telling them about the coming crucifixion and suffering that he would endure. Or we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm your disciple. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to live this Christian life. But I'm going to need a certain amount of status along with it. I need a certain amount of recognition or praise along with it. And if I don't get those things, then I'm going to take my ball and go home. You know, I'll still be your disciple, but I'm just not going to follow you around anywhere. I'll be your disciple. I'm just not going to be involved in anything you're doing unless I get to have the kind of status and human recognition that I think I deserve. James and John there uh, demanding recognition. Or the disciples as well putting themselves above the people when they were bringing their children and saying, no, 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 you, you can't come. Only we can be around this little circle. You know, guys, this is our heart. This is who we are. And this is why the, the word is giving this to us. This is why God is presenting this chapter to us because this is who we are in our fallen humanity. These are things that we say to God if we uh, allow our hearts to run rampant. This is God's word revealing to us who we are as people. And Jesus explains here, that these sort of attitudes, these sort of conditions that we often place on our faith are the opposite of what a Christian is. It is the opposite of discipleship. You can't get that any more clear than Jesus keeps coming to people and saying, yeah, what you're doing is the opposite of what God intended for marriage. What you're doing is what, the opposite of what I intend for service and for recognition and for you know, the kingdom of God. You know, uh, it's the, the idea is, Lord, I'm happy to be a servant as long as I'm the first servant. As long as I'm the top servant, the most important servant, the one that gets to delegate the things I don't want to do to other people, the one that gets to keep this little personal business on the side over here without being bothered by your will and your commands and all of that. That's the attitude that lives way down deep in our hearts, and that attitude quietly seeks to accumulate more territory in our lives. See, that, that's the important thing about looking at a passage like this as the, as the word of God just gives us example after example of, after example. God is trying to say, hey, this is, this is what we're dealing with in the fallen human heart. And this is what I'm trying to save you from here. And we think, well, you know, that's just not really that big of a deal. I'm not going to deny the Lord. I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that. But this attitude in the heart and this old nature, it very quietly seeks to gain territory and to gain ground in our lives and in our hearts and in our habits. Until one day I am the rich young ruler coming to the Lord and saying, oh, I'll totally do whatever you want me to do except for this, 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 and this. I know you're God. I know this is your word. I, you know, I have a desire to follow you, but I'm not going to let it cost me anything. I'm not going to let it you know, uh, command anything of me. I, I'm going to come to this on my terms. And if we don't take care of these things, these lusts for power or prestige or for wealth or for a different spouse or status above other people, then we're going to be useless to God's kingdom. If we can't deal with this stuff, we're useless to God. We're useless to his kingdom. We become people who are in the category of what God permits rather than what God desires. Think Abraham and Lot. Both, the New Testament calls both of those guys believers. You know, it calls Lot that righteous man, which blows our mind from, you know, from what we know of Lot. The New Testament looks back and says, Abraham and Lot are both righteous men. 
And the Lord permitted Lot to go down and live in Sodom, even though that wasn't the place that he wanted him to go, even though that was a place of sin and a place of compromise. Abraham did what the Lord desired, and he said, Lord, you know, that land may look better to me, but I just want to go where you want me to go. So you have things that God will permit us to do, whether even if they're sinful, God permits us to do them. And then we have things that God desires for us to do, and that's where we want to be. God permits a lot of things because he gives us a will to choose. What God desires is that a disciple, number one, actually actively follows him. Uh, number two, follows obediently wherever the Lord might direct. And number three, is ready to crucify self. Now, sometimes these attitudes or these conditions that we put on our Christianity come in disguised as needs or struggles that we're facing. Man, Lord, I want to follow you the way that I should. I really do, but man, my marriage is falling apart or I'm out of money and I just need more money to get out of this trouble or I wish someone would just recognize my service and I'm so discouraged, you know. And, and we can sometimes convince ourselves that we are victims of these problems and that we're not, you know, that they're not really holding us back on purpose is that, well, if I, if I just wasn't under this weight, I, I'd be able to really follow the Lord. Now, the heart is deceptive. That's what the Bible says. Hey, he says, man, your heart is wicked and deceitful and above all things is just lying to you. The heart tries to convince us that these sort of conditions are, are keeping us from really being able to move forward on the disciple road. But what Jesus says is simple. He says, okay, yeah, God can do anything. You think this is impossible. You think that what I'm calling you to is impossible. God can do anything. God makes all things possible. God can make a camel go through the eye of a needle or he can sustain your life if you sell all you have and give to the poor. That's what Jesus said. He says, hey, God will take care of what he's calling you to do. The question is not how difficult are the circumstances surrounding my life right now. The question is, what has God asked me to do? Because if God has asked me to do it, then I can do it. And, and he has a plan for it. Where has he asked me to go? Who has he asked me to interact with? On Sunday, we were faced with this text in 2 Samuel that talked about reinstating the king in our lives. We talked about revival and how that word is specifically only for God's people. You can't be revived unless you've already been vived, unless you already have spiritual life within you. And, and uh, uh, you know, we talked about people who have the Lord reigning over their lives, but in some way or another had dethroned Jesus as king in favor of some other pursuit or focus or attention. And then we were invited on Sunday to each take stock of how vived we are right now in our faith and how vived we are in our discipleship. And here in this text, we're given this, these examples of these conditions that we bring into our Christianity because all of these attitudes lurk around in every one of our hearts. And we need to be real about that. God is not trying to rebuke us in this text. He's trying to warn us. Say, hey, man, these are things that are going to hold you back from being a part of my kingdom. These are things that are going to hold you back from a deeper relationship with me. These are things that are going to hold you back from the power and the filling that I want to give you. Because when we get caught up in these kinds of, well, when we get caught up in this kind of conditional discipleship, then we as individuals lose opportunities and dividends that God wants for us. And we want what God wants. And so the best way from this text to evaluate our need for revival or, or to evaluate our discipleship and see if we've brought in some conditions onto that discipleship where we say, Lord, I'm coming to you, but on my terms, the best way to evaluate that is to answer the question that Jesus posed two times in this text to different people. He said, what do you want me to do for you? And it's a very interesting question because 
The way that you answer that question reveals a lot about what kind of disciple you are right now. Jesus asked it to the sons of thunder, James and John, and he asked it to blind Bartimaeus. When he asked James and John, what did they ask for? They asked for power and preeminence. They said, Lord, we want to be the boss of everybody. We want to have status above everybody. We want to be, you know, the top of the heap. They asked for personal greatness above others, to which Jesus had to stop on their way. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and man, the Lord's headed towards the cross here, and all this incredible stuff is happening. And then they come up to him and say, hey, uh, we want you to do this for us. And he stops, and he huddles up everybody. He says, okay, 12, the 12, get around here. I need to talk to you. And, and he has to explain that, yeah, yeah, guys, you have this completely wrong. What you are talking about is the opposite of me. When you act like that, you're acting the opposite of me. So let's take care of that. Now he gets to blind Bartimaeus and he asks the exact same question. And Bartimaeus says what? Lord, I want to see. He, he had called out for the Lord's mercy. Jesus stopped and said, hey, come on over, kind of signaling that he was ready to give him his mercy. So he'd received the Lord's mercy and then he said, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, I want to see. I think it's interesting that already once before in our studies here in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen a chapter where the disciples weren't getting it, weren't getting it, weren't getting it, weren't getting it. And interjected there was a story of a blind man receiving his sight back in Mark chapter 8. And devotionally speaking, what we want is for the Lord to give us vision like Bartimaeus wanted. No strings attached, no conditions. In fact, Bartimaeus threw off his cloak to get to Jesus that much faster. What's important is that Jesus gives us vision in this life because we want to see God be glorified in our lives. We want to see those opportunities he brings to us to minister and to share the gospel. We want to see people as the Lord sees them with love and value, whether they're lepers or children or tax collectors or fishermen or whoever they might be. We want to see Jesus present in our lives. But Jesus has to change our hearts and to open up our eyes. He says, man, this is what your heart is. It's full of conditions. It's full of withholding. It's full of all this stuff. Your eyes are closed to spiritual things. And so we say, yeah, Lord, give me the vision that you want for me. Jesus is the one that has to transform our desires and to fill us up with himself. The good news is he's ready to do that. He's ready to do that if we're willing to let him. And so if we look within ourselves this morning... And allow God's word in Mark 10 to ask us this same question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? If the answer isn't, Lord, I just want to see. I want to see you sitting on the throne of my life. Then there's a problem. If we have some condition there, Lord, I want this, then I want you to revolutionize my life. That's going to reveal what kind of conditions we've brought into our discipleship. Lord, I want, I want to follow you as long as I get my recognition. Lord, I want to follow you as long as I get to keep all my money. Lord, I want to follow you as long as I feel good doing it. Lord, I want to follow you as long as it costs me nothing. That's what these other people said in this text. Discipleship costs something. In fact, it costs everything. Back in Mark 8, we read this. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The Lord is ready to revive us, but are we ready to be revived? So we get to deal with that.